into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Hello, everyone. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, have a super solstice, uh, and a crazy Kwanzaa. Uh, this is Jake. Hi, I'm coming to you alone this holiday season weekend because um, the other two hosts of this show are off with their families, and I don't have one. Uh, I'm here with my cat, Murray. In Brooklyn, podcasting for you this holiday season. Just kidding. I have a family. My mom uh, just mailed me a Gengar onesie for Christmas. Isn't that adorable? Uh, but I am here for the holidays, so I figured I would do our Christmas episode, which, if you're a fan, a longtime fan of the show, you'll be aware is more half-assed around here than our Halloween episode. We put all of our effort into Halloween because it's the best holiday and Christmas time <laughs> is a time to relax in my opinion. So this is going to be, uh, why am I prefacing this? Like it's going to suck. I think I have a good idea here. Um, but that's why I, I'm doing a solo episode because I've been out of town. I've been off the pod and I figured I owed us one. And also I have, I think COVID so I can't leave. I don't really want to do a podcast with anyone else because I think I have something. I'm sick uh, I'm in some way, and I you know, don't want to like give anyone whatever the fuck this is. Um, and I've been laying around all last few days uh, watching movies and stuff, and it occurred to me that this is a perfect opportunity to do an installment of our newest series, Dread Tube the podcast series where we do solo uh, audio essays like they do on YouTube in the, uh, the what do you call it, the niche scene subculture known as BreadTube, which is popular among film dorks, leftists, and probably rightists. I'm assuming there's Nazi Bread tube, but I don't care to look because I am not a YouTube guy. E email me, let me know. Uh, anyways, everyone settle in, make yourself a nice cup of wassail or um, what eggnog, whatever festive drink you drink this time of year, Kwanzaa tea. Um, <clears throat> because, uh, I want to talk this week about a film that I quite enjoy. That's my favorite Christmas movie that isn't a Christmas movie. You know, the types, we all have them. I'm not going to get into that discourse because I, it's beaten to death. But, um, but this movie, this film almost said foovie because I was trying to say both those words at the same time, um, is uh, most definitely a Christmas film that's not a Christmas film. And it's, I think, I'm going to make a case for it today, an anti-capitalist film. Um, it's you know hard to say exactly what Kubrick was saying at any given time. And especially with this last film, it's open for hella interpretation because he died before probably getting the final edit on it. And also uh, he's dead, so we can't ask him not that we could have when he was alive really anyways what he really means by this movie but the fun thing about that is that we get to take a stab at it right so uh today tonight whenever you're listening to this i would like to discuss the 1999 masterpiece known as eyes wide 
shut. Aside from the obvious Christmas season parallels, there's another reason floating in the air that I think this movie is relevant and why it piqued my interests. Uh, mostly because I am a, you know an online idiot, like I'm sure most people listening to this, and uh, spend too much time on Twitter, and so the, the discourse of the day tends to provide itself as a source of inspiration for me, right? And the discourse of the last few days has been, uh, among other things, the the really good non-Elon discourse on Twitter last week has been about an article someone wrote in which they coined the term Nepo Babies, um, I think, that uh, got everyone talking about nepotism as a concept and whether it's a good idea or it's useful at all to write a shocking expose in which you expose everyone in Hollywood and their um, connections, you know, to uh, to, to, to uh, through bloodline <laughs> to um, the industry that they work in. What does this say? What does this expose? Right. Um, personally, as somebody with at least at the very least aspirations in the entertainment industry, um, I kind of enjoy whenever people talk about this sort of thing because I think it jostles a lot of people out of their ideological worldview um, for a little bit. It's a wake-up call. Um, it exposes a truth that I think needs to be discussed. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter responded to this discourse by, how do I explain this, um, uh, downplaying the importance of nepotism and a lot of those people I think were probably doing this because they themselves benefited from nepotism because um, that's why you have a blue check mark next to your name most of the time not me got mine by hustling and lying but a lot of people that's how they got them right that's how you make your, your place in society that's how you get your status and so um, you know a lot of people just said, uh, let's not talk about this to which I say, ha ha ha. It's very funny, right? We should talk about it. Um, but there was a meaningful left, uh, critique of nepotism discourse that I appreciate and think is, uh, you know, is worth noting. Um, let me find the tweet. Okay, here it is. So a user named at rubbish underscore bin underscore man, great name, uh, replied to me and said, yeah, I just don't really care much about this. Hardly seems like the most important thing in the world that, uh, that we democratize the right to be a celebrity. And I have to say, I agree with that person. Thank you, rubbish bin man. That's a really good point because at the core of this, it does seem like um, what people are pointing out when they point out that Hollywood is only full of the privileged, right? So much social justice language is in, I, I think, the world or my world, our world. I don't know what, if how this, you know, if this is just the bubble I work in or if this is extremely um, representative of American culture at large. Tell me if maybe it's not, but I suspect it is. So much of that language as revolves around Hollywood and the idea of uh, people getting to become celebrities and that as this like litmus test for whether society is uh, functioning in a progressive way or not or whatever, or whether that itself is society functioning as a progressive um, thing. Um, and... I guess I've been thinking about this nepotism thing and it's 
tricky for me because I fucking I hate rich people. Um, I especially hate the fact that rich people get to be artists. It's the most annoying thing about being in a scene or an industry like this. And, uh, you know, you often wonder somebody recently, I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, you know, um, why, why don't rich kids patronize artists like rich people used to, you know, that'd be cool instead of having to getting to be them. But that's not the world we live in right now. Um, but I, I was thinking about this and so I guess the way I feel about it is I, I, I think I'm doing a dialectical thing here. Uh, probably not. I'm probably just both sides in an analysis, but, uh, come with me, humor me, right? <laughs> is that, um, it is good to expose this idea because it's a social contradiction. Um, it's bad though, to let the narrative become one that frames nepotism as a problem that people just need to be more aware of it, because what happens when you raise these, these questions, uh, <laughs> is that that becomes the PR uh, response is well. Um, people have pointed out that Hollywood is full of uh, rich people in Hollywood's children, right? Uh, so what we should do is do a diversity hiring uh, showcase or whatever. <laughs> and uh, what happens then is you hire a few token, you know, marginalized people. They inevitably all pull up the ladder behind them, and uh, then you just have a more diversified ruling class in the uh, the the industry that everyone wants to be in, in America and in the modern world, the fun job of being a celebrity and not really having to work. Right. That's dumb. That makes your brain melt when you watch it happening and you watch it become the, the end cap, uh, the, the end, you know, conclusion to this discourse. Don't let that happen. I think the important thing here in exposing how society is really structured uh, and how these jobs are really structured is that the real lesson here should be that this stuff is a natural outcome of class society. And there's a way to solve that that we can't say out loud on the show too much. Now at this point, uh, some 10 odd minutes into this podcast about eyes wide shut, you might be asking, uh, Jake, what does this have to do with the movie eyes wide shut? What does Hollywood and uh, nepotism and uh, that sort of thing have to do with spooky parties where people wear masks and fuck? Um, well, it has to do with dreams, right? The reason that it is so jarring uh, from a particular point of view to learn that your Dua Lipas and... Um, uh, Billy Eilish's and Machine Gun Kelly's did not actually tooth and claw their ways to the positions that they have achieved in life. Uh, the realization that they didn't earn everything they have yet merely were sort of handed it on a golden platter or whatever the term is um, by virtue of having been born into a family with lots of money and resources and ultimately the status of bourgeois. The reason that's so jarring, I think, is because what celebrities represent to a lot of people is the myth that you can do that, that you can ascend from your position as a worker whose life sucks if you're really lucky and you work really hard and you win the genetic lottery and you're born with all this talent and whatnot, that uh, you too could essentially um, you know, climb the class ladder and become one of the haves and not one of the have-nots and sort of transcend this, this, uh, this class divide. And I think it's really important for people to believe that because deep down, most of us know that it is impossible. And when you know that it is impossible, life becomes very dark and dreary and pointless. And uh, you get very sad. And so even if you need some, even if, even if the myth that is carrying you through life is absurd and silly 
just having that dream serves a function. It keeps you working until the end of the day. It keeps you from turning straight to the bottle at all times. Um, it keeps you from <laughs> I, looking at the world for what it is, which is, in my opinion, step one to class consciousness, revolution, what have you. Uh, you have to face the world for what it is. It's terrifying and gross, but there it is. I think about this a lot because I have been through a decade and a half of stand-up comedy and open mics and you know a lot of people with broken lives and uh drug and alcohol problems in, in their past in their present uh in their future um but a lot of people using the dream of eventual success or at least the possibility of it even if it's understood to be a crapshoot as a crutch something to lean on I think about this a lot because in the Bible, we have this figure in Jesus who supposedly can perform this miracle of feeding people out of thin air. And, and we also have a warning that comes from the Bible, which is to uh, beware of um, imitators and fakes false prophets who sort of come to you and say uh, that they can do the same thing or they can teach you to do such and the lesson is supposed to be right that uh, the only way to do that is the the way that we've outlined in the Bible which is some crazy pagan gobbledygook where you have a personal relationship with the guy and he died and he got crucified and all this shit but the important part here is that there's a parallel in uh, that is reflected in cinema in capitalism and in early black and white movies um the myth of the uh false prophet as like a trickster i don't know it it presents itself it uh reappears in certain ways it that i think are a natural echo of this same thing that's happening that i'm describing uh one example is like a film called night of the hunter um, uh, Night of the Hunter is a 1955 black and white film, um, about a sort of like drifting grifter who shows up in this town and poses as a minister and effectively, uh, you know, charms an old lady out of a lot of money and, uh, you know, turns into a murder spree sort of situation. Um, it's a great film. So another film I'm thinking of called A Face in the Crowd, which is a 1957 film by Elliot Kazan, oddly enough, <laughs> starring Andy Griffith. And uh, it sort of follows like an early um, shuckster, you know, a guy who pulls himself up out of nothing but is originally this slick hobo character and he discovers that he's really good at... Um, advertising <laughs> and this fits really well in the you know the mode of production of the day he becomes a radio star and he starts hawking like stimutax uh meth pills basically and uh becomes unscrupulous and unethical about the stuff that he's selling and then he becomes mad with his own power another great film the andy griffith character in this film a face in the crowd is a good um, illustration of what I'm talking about because there's a lot of and so can you I I did this thing I just I just stuck to it I put a little elbow grease into it and so can you that was the rhetoric of the time you know when uh, a stand-in for utopia a stand-in for heaven or rather a parallel to heaven existed in this dream that we call the American dream this Elysium on earth of making it uh you know, of finally getting to the point where you have what's referred to by economic hucksters nowadays as passive income, right? Uh, getting to a point where you don't have to work anymore. You see this a lot now uh, if you watch um, weird business mindset guy videos and uh, subscribe to, you know, those sorts of shit posting groups, or you just watch like 
you know, stuff like the Breakfast Club, that radio show where they have like all sorts of guests come in. Every once in a while, they'll have just like a guy who's been completely driven mad by capitalism come in and start explaining like, you know, if you just work hard enough, you, uh, you, you know, you can get this passive income going and then you can do this and you can do that. And there's always an air of it that reminds me uh, very much of like a like a like a an amalgamation of a grifter um a religious zealot uh maybe like a uh righteous gemstones type character it's all there the idea that people who are rich are born rich largely contradicts the uh you know the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that these people are trying to sell you directions to you see all this also reflected in uh, celebrities' reaction to being exposed as nepotism cases. It directly contradicts the myths that you know most, I'd say, basically all celebrities are sort of guilty of trying to uh, create about themselves, which is that they worked really hard and that's how they got to where they are. Um, very few people in the entertainment industry are willing to admit that uh, they maybe had, a, you know, a leg up at the very least in how they got to where they are. But seem most people seem over eager to emphasize their part in what happened, which is fine because it assuages something in your mind. But um, it's largely, I mean, if you look at the numbers scientifically, uh, this isn't a case of a bunch of people who happen to be related to famous directors and actors and stuff like that also having a significant amount of personal courage and uh, integrity, right? <laughs> That's not the important factor in this, in these stories. But the myth, the myths that we create and that we hold around these people provide something to their fans. Fandom is a very sick thing in this world. They provide a belief that even if it's a crapshoot, that could happen to you or your kid someday. And that's a reason to keep functioning in the world the, w the way the world is set up. It's quite literally what I'm arguing is making it as a rapper or a comic or a fucking pro skater or whatever is it's kind of a secular version of like a miracle. And if we believe in miracles, then we can keep going without thinking too much about what it means if they're not true we can live our lives as uh studious uh subservient workers knowing that we shall receive pie in the sky when we die this i think is how the capitalist system protects itself at least uh an illustration of it in the realm of the entertainment industry. And I think it's just, it's very timely and relevant because the entertainment industry is our culture in America and, uh, seemingly worldwide. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not famous actors and musicians serve as our gods on earth, our, you know, Kardashians and our Beyonce's and Jay Z's and people like that. So, what does this have to do with Eyes Wide Shut, the film I haven't even started talking about yet? Well, the thing you need to know about Eyes Wide Shut is that uh, Kubrick had been working on this film for fucking ever through, uh, I think, since like the 70s. He's had this thing um, in various forms of, you know, pre-production or whatever. Um, and it's clearly very important to him to get this story out, right? Uh, it's based on a 1926 novella called the Trom Novelle, which I guess loosely means dream story by a guy named Arthur Schnitzler. And the, what he does, what Kubrick does with the film Eyes Wide Shut very cleverly is, you know, this thing that you do with stories sometimes where you retell the essential bare bones of a story from a different time or a different era or genre uh, in your time, right? So Eyes Wide Shut takes place in New York City in the late 90s at, uh, you know, the end of civilization uh, or the end of history, rather, what I meant to say. End of civilization, I wish, right? We all do. Uh, but yeah, so the original story, and here's what's important here, 
the novella is set in early 20th century Vienna, which is historically a very interesting place because it's a part of the world that has only recently sort of become the state that it is and become a place that is thrust out of having kings and stuff like that into having states and nationalism and yet if you know what happens in the early to mid 20th century you know something is on the horizon these people are in a sort of end of history or civilization or whatever of their own the birth of what we understand to be phase two of the process of historical dialectical materialism is uh, in full swing and is coming to its conclusions. Its contradictions are starting to fall in on itself and something is about to fucking happen in that part of the world. Now, I haven't read the novel, but I if, fuck, if anyone has, let me know if I'm divining any of this correctly. Um, I think all of this early 20th century you know late 19th century bourgeois like liberalism era stuff is the reason that the character that we follow in the uh, 1999 story in eyes wide shut uh the main character the tom cruise character i think all this stuff is the reason he's a doctor because a doctor is kind of the best job you can have in this newly created world known as liberalism. Uh, outside, well, I guess right short of being uh, a capitalist, right? Because a doctor isn't necessarily a capitalist. He's kind of a highly, highly, highly skilled professional, right? I mean, a doctor can be a capitalist, but I don't think this character is. Tom Cruise's doctor character is named Dr. William Harford or Bill or as he's referred to throughout the movie Dr. Bill as he frequently is flashing dollar bills at people I think it's uh, meant to I think this is having a purpose Dr. Bill <laughs> I'm sorry it keeps making me think of Mr. Bill from Saturday Night Live because I'm a million years old Dr. Bill has a wife named Alice, played by uh, Nicole Kidman. Uh, the two actors are fucking in real life around this time, if that means anything to anyone. Uh, and they have a daughter named Helena, who I don't think is actually their daughter. Um, but yeah, he's got this wife and this daughter. And at the beginning of the film, you know, we see this. We get we get like an oddly unKubrickian sort of. Um, plunge into their uh their personal worlds right and their relationship and the ways that they feel uh or at least alice the nicole kidman character feels kind of trapped in her marriage with dr bill and explains to him the anxieties and feelings she has about it to which he is he is kind of flabbergasted this is important then they uh, have sex and there's some cool music playing and you see some butts and stuff and it's a really good time. And then it's on to this Christmas party hosted by um, one of Dr. Bill's patients, a wealthy patient named Victor Ziegler. Um, at the party, our couple splits up for a little bit. Alice is um confronted by a uh, really intense eastern european man named like sandor or some shit who very very deliberately and clearly tries to bang her he, he drinks from her glass of champagne uh like like that's how that's his opening move fellas how do you open he grabs her glass and drinks it it's insane um and then he starts telling her all about uh, i'm from luxembourg or whatever the fuck um <laughs> and she's very tempted by this man right dr bill also very tempted by two young women he meets who just are these 
bizarre dreamlike Lynchian characters. Um, we get their names. Their names are weird and European. Another reference, I'm sure, to the original text. Nuella or some shit like that. Um, but more importantly, you know, they start to enter into a bit of banter and innuendo. This is this sexy film after all that everyone was so horny for at the time. And when he asks them, uh, cause he's a dork and everything he says in the film is very straightforward. Um, cause he doesn't have understanding of anything or subtext. Uh, when he asks them, you know, very plainly, what are you offering me? What are you sort of, uh, hinting at with all this stuff? Cause he doesn't understand that they're trying to have sex with them. One of them says, uh, that they are trying to take him to the end of the rainbow. Now, what is at the end of the rainbow? A pot of fucking gold, right? Just then, Dr. Victor Siegler summons Dr. Bill. I'm sorry, not Dr. Victor Siegler. Regular Victor Siegler summons Dr. Bill because Dr. Bill's the only doctor in the story. Victor Siegler summons Dr. Bill to his offices. It's a very abrupt. It's an emergency, right? What's happening? Well, this guy, Victor Siegler, who is, again, one of the patients of Dr. Bill, um, has been uh, having sex with a sex worker in his office. The sex worker lady did a speedball. She uh, fucked herself up and is, like, ODing, and he needs his doctor to bail him out of the situation. Very important scene. Dr. Bill does such... He is able to save this woman's life. Um, he's able to save Dr. Ziegler's reputation uh, and everything gets swept under the rug. Yada, yada, yada. Dr. Bill gets on with his life after this. So then they leave the party and the story moves on. Um, before we get back into the story, though, we should probably stop for a minute and talk about something else that is central to everything going on here. The movie, the phase of history we're discussing fucking dollars and cents and everything right gender this movie heavily fucks with gender in an important way that a lot of leftist dorks don't um there's a lot of hegel uh origins of the family that sort of shit going on here and this movie really hammers home that we are all whores um you might have heard the term bisexual lighting if you've been on the internet, right? Something we all had a good laugh about when Euphoria was on the air. The idea that if you have blue lighting and red lighting simultaneously being projected over a character, um, this is the aura of bisexuality or something pretty funny, I, pretty logical. I can see where they're going for there, right? Given the gender notations, or connotations rather, of the colors blue and pink. Well watching this film uh with all that in mind retroactively you see a metaphor they used in this film i think sort of present itself a little bit more clearly because we've had this conversation i think that eyes wide shut is shot in heterosexual lighting because there is blue lighting and there's red lighting and they don't overlap they're very much um deliberately brightly displayed throughout this film these warm warms and these blue sterile blues um alone and in contrast with each other sometimes in the same scene but not like in bisexual lighting where it all comes into one blob on the fucking character's head while they do ketamine or whatever right um it's it's, it's very metaphorical and i think it's if you know anything about kubrick nothing's on accident right so i think that there is meaning to what happens and why these scenes are shot that way Dr. Bill's daughter is maybe the most important character in the story who is constantly languishing in the background of all this. Um, I think that she provides a very spooky, you know, question mark uh, at the end of the story because what's happening here is you've got this guy, this bougie guy who lives in a nice apartment in New York City at the peak of you know, the dream of American civilization. He's got his cell phone. He's got his hot wife. 
He's got a lot of money that he seems to not even have to think about. And the only reason that things start to unravel for him and form into this story is that when he talks with his wife, he uh, starts to understand that she may be not happy with this deal, you know, this life that they've sort of bought into and that he's sort of like imagining and dreaming and sort of trying to will into existence. She at one point asks uh, him if, you know, she'll, if, if, if he could like play along with her by uh, discussing any thoughts of infidelity that maybe each of them have had. She tells him about this naval officer that she fantasized about when they first met and made her question, you know, leaving him and the Helen and everyone, Helena, whatever kid's name is, uh, and everyone, um, and has this honest moment where she explains this thing that shouldn't be, it, that she should not have fantasies like that if the life, the little bourgeois life that they are living um, is real, or they're attempting to live, rather, is is real. She's confronting him with a contradiction, right? He responds that he never even thinks about this sort of stuff because he believes that women are naturally subservient in a way and that they naturally devote themselves to their lovers and that he's never even he's crossed his mind that his wife wants to fuck somebody else. Now, being disturbed by this contradiction, he you know suddenly begins to ponder it, but not before he gets a phone call on his... 1999 fucking where are you at cell phone and has to go treat a uh, a dead dead person. I guess you can't treat a dead person. I don't know why you call a doctor, but somebody calls him and says, hey, this person's dead. Can you come do stuff to them? And he does. And he has a weird moment with uh, <laughs> the woman who's there. She tries to hit on him. He goes, you're losing your mind because of grief. Um, nothing happens. He keeps moving. And eventually as he's walking home through the village and all of these contradictions are starting to stir in his head regarding his wife and uh this shattered idea that he had of what it must be like in her inner world it occurs to him to get some revenge to project his masculinity right because he feels as though he's been cucked on some level even just by the wife of his having these thoughts or whatever um some frat guys walk past him and uh, call him the names that people call me on the internet. Um, it's basically like a bunch of, uh, you know, podcast guys. They're like, you, you're gay, and you eat cum. And he goes, I do not cum. And then he uh, continues moving. This is an interesting scene, right? Because it's like an externalization of his insecurities that he's dealing with. Uh, we're doing dream logic and stuff in some of this, some of, some of Kubrick's movies. Then, like out of a dream, this sex worker just approaches him and uh he does pick up on what's going on for once he has so now that he's a little bit more jaded uh he understands innuendo and as this woman you know sort of beckons him and says hey do you want to come into my apartment he starts to pick up on what's going on and i think he starts to have this like steamy you know kind of resentful i'm gonna get back at my wife's uh kind of weird threatening unfaithfulness by being a, a man and going and doing what men do and hiring a lady of the night or whatever right the sex worker is named domino i can't remember if i mentioned that just now i'm doing this all very fast um she her room is very warm I mean, like lit, very warm. There's um, interesting stuff in the background. If you want to do film analysis stuff, there's a lot of like African art and zebras and shit. There is a book very prominently displayed called Introduction to Sociology. Come on, man. We all know Kubrick. That is not an accident. Dr. Bill. Um, well, the first thing he does is he goes, I guess we should talk about money, right? Because he knows that his superpower is that he makes a lot of money as a doctor she is somewhat disarmed by his uh seeming uh you know inability to disengage in the way that men do i'm sure like we're supposed to understand that most of her clients are um you know uh frank and divorced from uh 
their actual lives in, in moments like this. He uh, is one of those funny people that I guess comes to a sex worker and still is kind of emotional and stuff like that. This charms her a little bit. This guy's trying to cheat on his wife, but he still kind of believes in what to him is a romantic notion that husbands are husbands and wives and wives. And that's a good thing. And the family is cool. Uh, he then leaves, uh, without having sex and, uh, goes to see his friend, Nick, who I forgot to mention. He, he ran into a friend of his at the, uh, the, the, the big fancy party that Victor Ziegler threw. Um, yeah, something odd happened, right? He met, he ran into this guy he knew in college who I guess dropped out of doctor school and <laughs> became an artist. He became a pianist and he, when he met, when he ran into him at the party, this guy, Nick Nightingale, the jazz pianist said, Hey, you should come see me at this club in the, the village in lower Manhattan. Right. Uh, cause he said, even though Nick Nightingale himself doesn't live in New York anymore or at all, he lives on the other coast. He, uh, you know, he flies around where they pay me, man. And so I'll be playing and you can come see me play piano. And so Dr. Bill goes and sees Nick play piano and after he catches just the end of his set and then afterwards over a beer nick nightingale leans in a little closer and he goes hey i gotta go because i got this other gig uh i shouldn't even be telling you about it man but it's real wild they make me play blindfolded and here is an important moment again in terms of who dr bill is at this moment of the story he hears this and all he hears is that there's some wild party going on and that he has to know what it's all about. So he starts using his little doctor superpowers like having lots of money and stuff like that and just having a lot of confidence and not taking no for an answer. And he starts pressing Nick Knight and going, you got to let me know where this party is, man. You don't have to bring me and Nick is going, no, seriously, you don't know what you're messing with. It's, I don't know. It's crazy. I don't know what the hell it is. And eventually he gets the address out of him and he goes, I'll come myself. They'll never know that we were connected. I just want to go snoop around this party because I'm having this weird night out where I'm questioning everything. Right? So Nick tells Bill, okay, but you have to wear a cloak and a mask because everyone there wears cloaks and masks and otherwise it'll be like really obvious that you're not from there, right? So not questioning this for a moment, Dr. Bill goes, no problem, I got a guy. I'm gonna go wake up this patient of mine who owns a costume shop, they'll have a cloak and a mask. He goes to the costume shop, which I guess the person who owns it lives in like the apartment above it. He buzzes the buzzer. Some other guy comes out. It's some old Eastern European man who like Sandor just represents vague, you know, illusion to this other world. And, uh, the guy tells him, yeah, that, that guy who owns the costume shop left. I own it now. Can I help you? And Dr. Bill whips out some money. He whips out some dollar bills, right? And he's just constantly flashing cash. At people cannot, Pound that home enough. That's what this guy does, right? He throws money at problems. So <laughs> the guy says, all right, you know, fuck 200 bucks, man. Twist my arm. All right, I'll let you inside my shop. And we'll go find you a little mask. And you can do whatever the hell you're up to. Um, and everything is lit really spookily and glowing. And it's Christmas at night in New York. And, oh, man, what a fucking mood, right? Um, something that happens in the in the costume shop that's really weird is that the owner stumbles upon these two guys who are like having some sort of bizarre sexual encounter with this younger Eastern European woman who looks ambiguously youthful and then suddenly we realize oh my god it's it's like his daughter and he's really mad at these two guys and he's like get the fuck out of her because they work for him and he goes we'll deal with you tomorrow get out of here and how dare you, you trawl up and everything, right? And like while he's doing this, he's like leaning back at uh, Dr. Bill and going, it's okay, you, I, you, I give you a good deal, you know? And uh, <laughs> it's all very funny. 
And I mean, it's a, I guess it's not supposed to be funny. It's funny to me because I'm, I'm fucked up, yo. But um, no, it's a really weird scene. It, it's odd and scary and uh, <laughs> and funny. Fuck you. Um, and then, you know, Bill gets his cloak and his mask, and he gets out of there. So then Bill finally, you know, decides to head to this party. He calls a cab. He pulls some cash out. He fucking bribes the cab driver. He says, hey, man, you hang out here for a while. I'll, you know, I'll give you, I'll throw you some more cash. Uh, you just, I gotta, you gotta keep the car running because I don't know what's going to happen because I'm going into some weird Jeffrey Epstein shit and I'm a gumshoe and I'm going to go have fun, you know, breaking it up and spying and maybe I'll get my dick sucked in a fucking plague mask or whatever. And he, <laughs> and she gets into this, this party that's in this like, you know, very nice estate, far off outside of town i'm guessing long island um rather than jersey but you know prove me wrong i don't know um he (laughs) walks in and then this is where the iconic images of the film all come from if you haven't seen it um you should watch it instead of listening to this but uh yeah all the stuff happens we all know right people are wearing cloaks they have these goofy ass masks on everyone's mask is like kind of different i'm a witch i'm a bird you know that sort of thing um they're all fucking with the masks on just very sterilely and weird there's like um it's it's ritual sex right <laughs> there's uh all sorts of freaky you know uh Illuminati shit going on. There's like a guy who's on all fours just being a table for two other people to fuck on. There's um just shit like that, right? We all know the the tropes of the genre at this point. It looks like a weird time. Um and then there's a ritual where this guy starts banging his staff on the ground and like the women kind of have to come up to him with their tits out and their masks on and stuff, and he's like picking them to go have sex with certain people or whatever and while this is happening we get a really great kubrick zoom shot into this masked figure who is in the balcony but he looks down right at dr bill and he's like you know it's an ominous look right very scary so eventually one of the women that is being offered up as a um you know commodity uh to consume and uh a treat for these old creeps to indulge in with like a feathered mask and everything she comes up to him uh to dr bill and she goes yeah you gotta get out of here you are not supposed to be here you have no idea what danger you're in and he confidently goes i that's don't worry about it i'll be fine right and this happens a few times yada 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 storytelling film tension whatever right then, to make a long story short, the main ritual fuck murder guy uh, who's in like a red cloak, <laughs> he calls he calls everyone into the main room. He calls Dr. Bill and he announces uh, that he knows that he's not supposed to be in here. He, uh, you know, it's very scary. It makes him take off his mask, say who he is and all this stuff. And uh, And as this is happening... Like, they're going to kill him, right? But this woman from the balcony, the same woman earlier who tried to warn him not to, uh, you know, not to meddle where he didn't belong, she appears and she says, um, take me instead. Uh, I'm willing to, like, sacrifice myself. And they agree to it and they let him go, right? And he leaves and then... It's through the looking glass and he goes back over everything that's happened in the story in another very hungover morning. I'm sure that we've all had in New York city. And this is where he becomes truly horrified and is broken from his spell and his stupid dream. He goes back to the costume shop to return his costume. He, uh, sees that his like very clearly the owner guy is actually pimping out his daughter and that it seems like the scene earlier where he yelled at the two guys was kind of a facade because those two guys are there everyone's having a good time 
he kind of looks at that and goes, eh, don't worry about it. And then he and then he leans in and goes, you know, but if you ever need anything, pal, and it's really creepy. It's like this guy's clearly trying to pimp out his daughter to Dr. Bill. Um, suddenly, you know, all of the images that he had of this nice, upstanding, small business owner are shattered. He goes around town and he, you know, he tr- starts trying to pick up the pieces of what happened the night before. He visits domino the sex worker he gets her roommate domino's not there you know why she's not there she uh found out that she has she's hiv positive today this is the reality of these people's lives that you are you know just going around slumming it with assuming everything's hunky-dory he goes to try to track down nick nightingale to see you know if he got his friend in any trouble for obviously blowing up his spot uh, he, he can't find him. The only thing per, thing he can find is the concierge at a hotel he worked at who's telling him, uh, also he's played by Alan Cummings very well. Uh, and he, he tells him, you know, just between you and me, pal, uh, yeah, he left with these two huge men. He had a bruise on his face. Like, I don't know what was going on, but it seemed kind of shady. Um, and, and they took him away. He even tries to just go back to the fucking orgy. Like, someone that doesn't understand the world because they're blind to their own fucking privilege might do. He returns to this extremely dangerous situation and thinks, I'll just talk to the manager. And they send out a very creepy old man who just hands him like a note that says, well, you don't, what does it say? I'm going to look it up. It's a pretty good line. Okay, well, here it is. I found it. Give up your inquiries, which are completely useless, and consider these words a second warning. We hope, for your own good, that this will be sufficient. Very scary. And he fucking ignores it. Um, <laughs> he reads a story in the newspaper about a woman who died uh, the last night of uh, it's some ambiguous I don't know, drug overdose or something and her name is ambiguous and everything's ambiguous but it's very heavily implied to both him the character and you the viewer that he's reading about the woman who sacrificed herself at the ritual you don't really know it's just sort of like floating there in the story and he becomes curious about this so he as a doctor is able to go to the hospital and look up whether this woman who's dead is the woman and he looks her up and she's dead. He looks at her body in the morgue. Finally, after all this snooping around and weird meddling and fucking still not understanding what's happening, Victor Siegler, Ziegler, sorry, doctor, human person, not doctor, Victor Ziegler calls uh, Bill to his office and just says, Hey, let's hang out and have a conversation. Right. Because Bill is so fucking dense. He still doesn't get it. Right. Victor Ziegler is very Hank Scorpio in this scene. He's drinking a scotch. He turns to Bill goes, you like the scotch? How about I send you a case? Um, he is shooting pool or rather just playing with pool balls on the table with your hands the way you do when you're not actually playing a game turns to bill goes you want to shoot a game with me he declines they uh both just sort of end up having this awkward conversation over a blood red felt pool table in the office of this rich guy victor ziegler um eventually ziegler breaks with him and goes man Listen, let's just get right to it. There's no easy way to say this. I know what you did last night. I know what you're up to. I think it's pretty clear that the guy who looked at um, Dr. Bill in the ritual party was Victor Ziegler because he turned and went, fuck, that's what the fuck is Bill doing here, right? Um, He, you know, sort of starts to explain that he's in a very uncomfortable situation and that he needs Bill to fuck off or else all hell is going to break loose. And mostly what's going to happen is that uh, Bill is going to die, which he still doesn't seem to understand. Ziegler continues to, um, you know, to, to emphasize how much danger Bill actually is in. Bill doesn't fucking understand. And 
eventually he explains pretty clearly that the woman who killed her or who sacrificed herself so that Bill could live uh, was, I think, the sex worker from the beginning of the story at Ziegler's party that Bill had treated and thus saved. So just to tie the plot together in a way that I think is actually pretty succinct is that Bill, Dr. Bill saved that woman's life and he also saved Dr. Mr. I keep saying doctor. He saved Ziegler's professional reputation, which is very important to a man in the bourgeois class, right? And because he did those two things at that moment, that's the only reason that he's still alive and that he has not been swept under the rug like all of these other characters who have mysteriously died or whatever throughout this story. And what's important here is that Dr. Bill like doesn't understand how much danger he's in because he has dreams because he's the highest level professional you can be in liberal society. So he thinks, let me into the, the bourgeois secret party. I'm basically you, right? But he's not because he's not actually a capitalist. He doesn't own anything. He isn't in the part of society where you get to wear cloaks and fuck everyone and, uh, you know, do ayahuasca and shake a fucking thing around or whatever. But he thinks he's basically there. He, he believes in his mobility, right? He believes in his ability to just pop up there, especially given how much money he has. Why wouldn't you? But that's the thing money is money and capital is capital and they're not actually the same things and he doesn't have any capital he's only got a fuck ton of money dr bill he's kind of like a rapper or something like that (laughs) like who hasn't like you know fucking created a sneaker company or a line of cologne or whatever yet and he's a true believer Like he does not understand this distinction and thinks that you can throw money at any problem But Ziegler is eventually able to get it through to him and to really rattle him. And when he's had this whole thing turned upside down in his head, when he finally gets it, when he's finally confronted with a true contradiction, one that that pierces his mind and destroys his dream, he realizes the grave danger that he's put his wife and daughter into And he goes home to talk to his wife. And the final scene, I think, is so perfect and so eerie if you understand all of what I just described. Because it's set, oddly, not that oddly, if you understand, I think, in a toy store. Because it's Christmas. And Christmas has been in the background of this like whole thing. There's just been like weird little, um, what do you call them? Christmas trees in the corner of every scene in between these blues and, and reds that I was talking about. And it's almost as if this holiday that he's been so enamored with this whole time. The, you know, the, the I mean, the ultimate consumeristic American holiday Christmas in New York in 1999 that's been in the background of every scene and that he's considered to be uh to be a good thing to mean you know that this this presence this warm presence of this light is a thing of safety he now understands it to not be and to be actually very dangerous and threatening and now that he's walking his family through a toy store in this warm light you can tell he understands how threatening it has been this whole time even though he didn't understand it and i think that's why this is a fucking terrifying psychological kubrickian ending is that he's like oh my god (laughs) like we're in grave danger and he walks and he talks with alice and alice sort of i mean it's it's, you know movie dialogue and it's kubrick dialogue and it's dreamy but i really think what she's trying to get across when she talks to him is that as a woman because this is so much a story about gender and the way that it plays into all of the stuff that the dr bill believed in the patriarchy and liberalism go hand in hand mind you is that she's 
saying this thing to him that I don't know, like in my life, I've had women tell me that it's always been really eye opening, which is just that like, oh, if you see so if you now you feel in danger, you know, this is what it's been like the whole time. <laughs> He's broken out of his fucking dream state. And she's like, this is reality is constantly feeling in danger like this and understanding that you don't have this autonomy that you have been running around assuming you had throwing dollars at people and stuff like that. Um, everyone is enslaved by the system of capitalism. Their child is like running around a toy store, you know, buying Barbie dolls and showing, you know, illustrating and embodying all these evils of capitalism. It's, you know, the kids being indoctrinated into a gender role and saying, I want to be like this female figure that we venerate. And, um, you know, and also I want you to buy it for me. And, uh, you know, all of this stuff is just very boilerplate, uh, capitalistic. This character, this man, Dr. Bill has been surrounded by women, this entire story who are clearly for sale and clearly not happy about it and resigned to it. And it's part of the fucking system, the mode of production. And he has, he does this thing that, that a liberal does, which is that they bat their eyes and go, well, you, you must have the job that you want or the role in society that you want because you picked it. Obviously. I mean, obviously he thinks that way up until the end when he has his world shattered. And when he has to, to be look around in a horrified manner at all these people that he made that assumption about, he is shocked. He sees the world for what it is. You know, he finally turns to his wife and sort of explains that he understands that capitalism makes whores of us all. And he's one too. And she, he asks her, what should we do? And she kind of just says, I just, I, we just pretend like it's a dream still. Cause that's, what's been getting her through all of this. And without even knowing it, that's, what's been getting him through all of it. But I guess it seems like she kind of is on some level relieved to understand that he didn't under that he to, un, to understand that he understands that he didn't understand or something, but it's a real spooky movie because it is 1999. And you know, the, the lesson here isn't now we understand class and have consciousness and maybe we can destroy it. It's, I understand what's happening and you cannot destroy the matrix. Uh, so I guess we just look on in horror as it, eats us alive and uh, history has ended and uh, I don't know <laughs> one to two. That's why it's a scary ass movie. And, uh, and that's why I watch it every Christmas to remind myself that we are in hell and, uh, the, the dream that we're dreaming to keep ourselves from looking directly in the devil's face is just an illusion. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. This has been Dread Tube number three, I think. Um, thank you for supporting us throughout the year. We've got plenty of cool ideas for new stuff to record episodes about uh, for the rest of the year and in the coming year and all that sort of stuff. Uh, sorry it was just me this week. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled um, format when the germs leave my body, when the viral load ejects itself from my biological humors and uh, viscera, and when Anders and Alex get back from spending time with their families or whatever they're doing. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have really, really the last minute gifts you need to give our merch store is open. I don't think there's enough time to send the stuff. So I don't know why I said that, but maybe you just want a shirt anyway, or, um, something else, a poster subscribe to our Patreon, please. It helps us make money to make the show. It gives you access to our discord, which is a community of people who terrify me. Um, no, I'm just kidding. You're all very sweet. I'll see you guys in the Discord. I'm going to hang out in there a little bit while I'm sweating out the rest of this flu. 
Um, listen to all of our other shows and stuff and see us live. Sorry if you came to see me at Alex's show. I got sick and couldn't be at it. Okay, uh, you know what? I'm done rambling. Eyes wide shut, baby. It's a messed up movie. It's finished. Yeah.